But it is good to be here. Um, I need to start by apologising to those that have got the translation on the sheets. Um, in, our church, in our church in Bristol, uh, we have uh, a Persian congregation who speak Farsi, uh, and so if I'm preaching in the home congregation, uh, they'll translate. Somebody will translate my sermon. So I send in my notes beforehand, uh, and afterwards they just tell me that. What was the point in giving me then the notes when I don't follow them? Um, so I'm really sorry if you've got one of the translations. I'll try and be as uh, stick to it as, as much as I can. Um, and thanks for for having me. Um, it's been really good for us to to spend the weekend with Ian and Jane uh, and the rest of their family um, and to catch up with some people here. So we're we're glad to be here. I want you to take take you back to to my childhood uh, and an oft repeated question. What is it worth? I remember repeatedly asking that of my dad. What is it worth? My dad was, is a very practical man, and he'd always respond in the same way. It's worth however much somebody will pay for it. And as a child, that's incredibly frustrating. It might be true, but it's incredibly frustrating. I wanted a a figure. It's worth 20 quid or or 300 grand or, or, or whatever it was. But Dad would always say, well, it's worth whatever someone will pay for it. So I would follow up then with, well, okay, well, how much did it cost? You tell me, it's, you know, it's worth what somebody will pay for it. How much did it cost? And that, as we look ahead to Easter, is a good question for us to ask. How much did it cost? In a couple of weeks' time, we'll be celebrating Easter. And that is the, the right phrase, but we'll be looking at the cross of Jesus. And maybe you're a visitor here today and you're, you're looking into to church and, and Jesus and what's it all about. And it's all about the cross. It's all about the Savior who died for people in history on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago. But how much did it cost Jesus? I don't know if you've ever thought about it, asked the question. Because it matters quite a lot. How much did it cost Jesus to die for me? I remember as a child thinking, in my own childhood logic, thinking, well, if Jesus knew that he was going to be raised to dead, like, you know, from the dead to back to life, it can't really have been all that costly. One afternoon's pain, one day's pain, a couple of hours. But if it didn't cost Jesus that much... Here's the problem. The problem is, if it didn't cost Jesus that much, I'm not worth very much. I'm not worth very much to God. And when it comes down to to my life, how valuable I am to God is really the only thing that will keep me going. Because I'm aware that in and of myself, I'm not very valuable. And you'll be aware of your own heart and your own life of of just how little value people would really place in you if they knew really what you were like. If they knew your hearts, if they knew your thoughts. But the Bible tells us that God values us an incredible amount. How much did it cost? And Was it really that costly? Was the suffering really that great? Because when I come to pray, when I'm struggling, when I'm suffering, 
it is so comforting to know that I have a God who knows what it is to suffer. But that's not much of a comfort if the cost is not that, if the cross is not that costly. So let's ask that question. Let's look at the cross. Let's go to the Garden of Gethsemane. How much did it cost Jesus? And so we might entitle this passage, this message, that the grief in the garden. And if we were reading through Mark's account, we've, we've read a little bit of it this afternoon, we would come to the Garden of Gethsemane straight from the upper room where Jesus has celebrated the Passover with his disciples. And as we walk into the garden with the disciples and with Jesus, on our minds are some of the things that Jesus has spoken. He has talked about the coming of the kingdom of God. He has talked about how one of his closest friends will betray him. And he has broken the bread and poured the wine and drunk the wine and said, this is what's going to happen. This is not just bread, this is my body. This is not just wine, this is my blood poured out for you. And all this is in the background as we walk in to the garden on the east side of Jerusalem, on the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane. And it is here that Jesus will face his ultimate test. I don't know if you've seen the film The Lord of the Rings. There's a moment in it where Galadriel, this elven princess, faces the the choice. She's offered the ring of power. And the whole, for her, this whole life, everything that's gone before and everything that's to come, hangs on this one moment. Will she take the ring or will she not? And that's the moment we reach here with, with Jesus. What will happen now? Because it will paint everything that's gone before and everything that's to come in a different light depending on the choice that he makes so three questions for us to to look at what is it that troubles Jesus what does he pray and thirdly how does he respond to the answer to his prayer just to walk us through so firstly what troubles Jesus timely trouble So Jesus gets to the garden and he drops off most of his disciples somewhere near the the entrance, it seems. Do you see that? They they get there and he, he tells them, sit here while I pray. And he takes his three closest disciples, Peter, James and John, he he takes them on a bit further. And it seems that they begin to see some of the the inner turmoil that Jesus is going through. Because Mark feels the need to to tell us, standing in verse 33, took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. And then Jesus says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Maybe Peter, James, and John can physically see the anguish that Jesus is going through. And then he tells them to wait. And they are told to to keep watch. Stay here and keep watch. And Jesus goes on alone. All on his own. And the impending horror of what is to come takes its full hold. Jesus is the one who has always been in control. In Mark's account and each of the four accounts of Jesus' life, the the control of Jesus is, is noticeable. Jesus always knows what's happening. Jesus is in charge. 
And even in this passage, as he's arrived with the disciples, he's told them to, to sit, to wait, to watch. And at the end of the passage, we jump forward to, uh, to verse 42. It's rise, let us go. Jesus is in charge. But right there in the middle, Jesus falls. He falls to his knees. He fell to the ground and prayed. Suddenly, the anguish takes hold. No longer can Jesus be fully in control. He falls to the ground. And he prays. And the question is, what is it that is afflicting Jesus? What is this trouble? What causes him to go from a man who is completely in control, who can sit with his disciples, have the meal with them, tell them what is to come, predict the, the betrayal of his friend? And What is it that at this point floors Jesus? We'll look down again. What is he prays? Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. What is the cup? Well, the cup is what he faces. It's what he will endure. Literally, you can imagine, can't you? A drink. It's, well, what's in the drink? It's what you're going to take into you. What is Jesus going to face? Well, okay, let's consider some of the, the alternatives. Is it the failure of his friends? So we've already read the account. We, we know that they're going to fail. Jesus is going to pray, fall to his knees, and, and then he'll come back and find that the disciples are sleeping. They've been told to watch, but they're asleep, and he, and he goes again, and they're still asleep, and he comes a third time, and finally, seemingly just goes, you're never going to do it. Well, it could be that. But we've already seen the disciples fail on many, on many occasions. If we were reading through Mark's account, we would have seen in chapter 8, Peter the greatest disciple, rebuke Jesus. Have the temerity, the the boldness, the arrogance to tell Jesus that he's wrong. Jesus is well aware of the, the failings of his followers. So it can't be that that makes him fall in the garden. But okay, what not just failing disciples, what about betrayal? Is it the fact that he knows that in a short while, he will see one of his closest friends publicly, wickedly betray him. I guess that would make most of us fall to the ground, knowing that one of our closest friends would so completely betray us. But again, Jesus already knows this is coming. He's already predicted it. He's already looked Jesus, Judas in the eye over the, over the Last Supper. So I don't think it's that. But is it the opposition? Is it the, the small army that's going to arrive in the garden to arrest him? Armed with swords and clubs. Uh, again, Jesus, throughout his ministry, has faced the opposition of the, the leaders. And in no way does it stop him. In no way does it make him afraid. So it's not that. So what is this cup? What is it that he will face? If it's not the opposition, it's not the hatred, it's not the scorn, it's not the rejection, it is the cup of God's wrath. The Bible talks about a cup 
that God brings and will make his enemies drink. Let me read you just three times in the Old Testament where the cup is talked about. Just listen to these words. God speaking through his prophets. In Job, let their own eyes see their destruction. Let them drink the cup of the wrath of the Almighty. In Psalm 75, in the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. Isaiah 51. Awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath. You who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. This is what Jesus sees. This, as he looks to the day ahead, is what he sees. He sees the response of God to the wickedness of people. The spotless Son of God faces the wrath of the Father. What was deserved by Israel and by her enemies, by us. This is what Jesus faces now. This is what causes the sweat to flow, the blood to come. The rightful response, the rightful wrath, the word is, of God against the sin of the world. And that is to be placed on Jesus. Jesus who is described as the spotless Lamb of God. Who is in no way, not even in the smallest, slightest way, deserving of him. And Jesus' response, the the passionate prayer. He says, Father, take this cup from me. The stench of the cup is overwhelming. The anticipation of the bitterness rends his heart. Jesus is in the garden and suddenly as he looks to the Father, all he can see is the Father and we sing about it, don't we? Turning his face away from Jesus. When I was in primary school, my mum occasionally did supply teaching for my uh, infant school and uh, So there would be odd days here and there where I would, (coughs) instead of having uh, my teacher tell me what to do, I'd have my mum tell me what to do in class in front of all my friends. And it's very odd, very surreal to have somebody who you know better than anybody else, who treats you in a special way compared to everybody else in the world, to then be treated by that person as though you're just the same as everybody else. It's very strange, instead of saying, yes, mum, to say, yes, Mrs. Keane. And to be treated as, you know, probably not a particularly good student and, you know, to be told off when you're doing wrong. And It's weird for your mum to suddenly become your teacher. That change of role, that change of response. You know, no hugs in the classroom. You know, no getting pocket money or getting sweets. Just, now mum is the teacher. It's a silly way of imagining what's going on here, but it's that change that Jesus sees as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. The father who he has been in relationship with, the Bible tells us, from before time began, somebody who is always loved and completely been loved by, 
As he looks into the day ahead, what he sees is that father will look upon him and pour out his wrath for the very worst that mankind has committed. No longer a son, but it will feel, it will feel, it doesn't change their relationship, but it will feel as though he's an enemy. He will be treated like an enemy. The loving smile that a parent gives their child replaced by a a hard, cold look, a look of disgust, a look of anger. And Jesus says, if there is any other way, any other way, take this cup from me. Not this. Not this. The father turns his face away. And Jesus says, not this. But the prayer (coughs) is answered. And the answer to the prayer is, yes, this. There is no other way. We know that because Jesus prays it three times. So verse 35 36, Abba Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. He returns to the disciples. He finds them sleeping. Verse 39, once more he went away and prayed the same thing. 41, returning the third time. He comes back again, prays. And the other gospel accounts tells us he prays the same thing for the third time. Three times. Father, take this cup away from me. And he has to keep praying it because the answer is this is the only way. There is no other way. And how does Jesus respond? It is the obedient response. Not my will, but yours. Not what I want, but what you say. In fact, we see it in two different ways. The first one is exactly that. Your will, not mine. Not mine, but yours. Obedience unto death. It's the great hymn of Philippians 2, isn't it? The humility of Jesus. That he is obedient even unto death, even death on a cross. He obeys the Father's will. And this is no tag on. Maybe sometimes Christians have been guilty of just tagging this on to the end of prayers, just giving ourselves a little get-out clause, just in case God doesn't answer what we want. Jesus is wholeheartedly saying, I submit to what you say, Father. It is the willful submission of the Son to the Father. I bow to you, I trust you, I will go your way. Jesus is horrified, he's petrified even of what is to come. He does not want to face it, but he bows to the Father. Greater than his sorrow, greater than his fear, is his desire to do God's will, to do what has been planned. And the second response is, okay, not not my will but yours, and it's your word, God, that is important not the world's way. And that's why we read the the second part when Judas comes into the garden. 
Judas appears with a crowd and they've come with their swords and their clubs. And he kisses Jesus. A warm act that is cold at heart, cold in intent. And you notice that, did you see the human response? The human response to this is, is what one of the disciples, who goes unnamed here, named elsewhere as Peter, always jumping in. He takes up his sword. Verse 47. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Isn't that how we want to respond when we see suffering and hardship and the way things that we don't want them to be appear on the horizon? We, we fight. We kick. Not that. But not Jesus. We want the control. We want to be in charge. But Jesus whilst in no way condoning the actions of the crowd and of Judas, he says the scriptures must be fulfilled. It's God's word that is important. Look down at verse 48. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. In the midst of the garden, as the action is kicking off, in Jesus' mind and heart, it is this. It is, I'm not going to go the way that the world is going to model to me, says that I should. I'm going the way that God has revealed in his word. That's what motivates him. That's his response. There is no other way than I will do God's word. I will obey, despite the cost. I will not fight. I will not resist. Simply, I will obey. And everyone flees. And Jesus alone is faithful. He comes in to the garden with 11 disciples, at least. And at the end, as the crowd marches him out, there is nobody, nobody left. So that's the account. What can we learn from it? How do we respond to it? I want to talk in two areas. The nature of salvation and then the nature of suffering. So salvation. Salvation is not cheap. How much did it cost? What Gethsemane does, it gives, gives us the depth of what's happening at the cross. Sometimes the cross can be so simple, we can see it too, almost in 2D. We just see what's happening and the events, and we take it. We say, okay, Jesus died for sin. What Gethsemane does is allows us to shift the angle and see the depth of what Jesus suffers. And salvation is not cheap. The costly love of Jesus. Our salvation is costly because our sin is so bad. Paul tells us in Corinthians that Christ became sin for us. And the rightful, proper response to sin is God's wrath. It is punishment. We can't downplay sin. And sometimes we are tempted to. So in our own hearts, even as we look ahead now to the week that's coming, we are tempted to treat our sin lightly. 
oh, it's, it's not so bad. Nobody else will know. Oh, it's not as bad as that. It's only a, a little bit of gossip. Oh, you know, it's, it's not like I'm having an affair. It's just a little bit of lust. And we downplay our sin. Convincing ourselves and maybe even other people that it's, it's really not all that. Let me encourage you, even now, take your sin to the Garden of Gethsemane. Examine your sin, your heart response to Jesus and to all that God has commanded us and take it to the Garden of Gethsemane. See the effect that our sin has on Jesus. It's not light. It's not a small thing. Our sin and God's right response to our sin is the only thing that can knock Jesus off course. It's the thing that knocks him to the floor in the garden. Can I really condone the attitude of my heart when I look at Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane? When the effect of my sin is to cause the Savior to to stumble. He doesn't sin. But it is at that moment he is at his weakest as he sees what our sin cost. And maybe you're here this afternoon and you're not a Christian. Maybe you're looking into it. Maybe you're here every week, but in reality you know that you're not following Jesus. Perhaps even as we sit in the garden with Jesus and we sit in the place of the disciples watching on, we need to feel the threat of the judgment of God on sin. Because if Jesus does not take that sin upon himself, if he does not take our sin, if he does not take our punishment upon himself, then we will face it. And we don't say that lightly. I do not say that lightly. But it's the truth. Either we bear our sin or Christ bears it for us. And the wonderful news is that Christ does bear it for us if we will trust in him. And as we look forward to Easter, the costliness of the cross is wonderful news for us as we think about our neighbours, as we think about the people out there on the street who we want to invite to hear of Jesus. There is nobody, nobody whose sin cannot be covered by Jesus. There's nobody whose sin is too great. How do I know? Because look at the cost of the cross. And so I'm confident that no matter who they are or what they've done, this is wonderful news for them. Because the cross is not a cheap thing. It's not a light thing. It is the ultimate cost with the ultimate reward undeserved and yet granted freely to those who trust in Jesus. So salvation is not cheap. And salvation comes through Jesus alone. I know this is wonderful hope because as we look for ourselves in this story, we are not the hero. We're not even close. Actually, we see ourselves in, in the weakness of the disciples. Those who Jesus says that they are willing, but they're weak. Those fallen asleep on the job. 
That's us. We are those that, when the pressure comes on, we are nowhere to be found. We are the cowards. Who, as the armed mob come into the garden, flee. I think what Mark does here is that he says, look, Jesus enters the garden with friends. But at the end, as he heads to the cross, he is utterly alone. Not even this young man who flees away naked. Nobody. Nobody stands with Jesus. Not Peter. Not the man who will become you know, the great leader of the early church. Not John, who will write such wonderful words about the love of God. Nobody. Nobody could say, yes, I stood with Jesus. Yes, I contributed. No, it's Jesus alone. Only him. And again, that gives us such confidence as we look to Easter. It is only Jesus, isn't it? Only Jesus. Let me talk about suffering. There's a wonderful uh, hymn that we sing. Praise my soul, the King of heaven. I don't know if you, you sing it here. It's a, a well-known older hymn. There's a line in there that says, Well, our feeble frame he knows. He's saying this, Jesus knows our weakness. Jesus knows our weakness. And in the midst of our suffering, for, I guess for many here, we are suffering even now. We have suffered and we all will suffer. In the midst of our suffering, we know that we have a saviour who has suffered for us, who knows what it is to suffer, who chooses, chose to suffer for us. And I want to say this, our, our suffering must always be placed in the context of his suffering. Because his suffering tells me that I'm not faultless. Our default when we suffer is to think that it's, it's all about us. And woe is me, and it's not my fault. But when I look at Jesus in the garden, it tells me that First and foremost, I am somebody who has caused suffering. I have caused the suffering of Jesus. But his suffering also tells me that there is a purpose in suffering. Jesus did not suffer needlessly. He suffered to win the church, to save sinners, to the glory of God. And as I look at his suffering, I say God uses suffering to do great things. In Christ, and now in his people. And Jesus is an example to us, isn't he? As he suffers, he turns his suffering, as he faces it, he turns it to prayer. But in the midst of that, even if the prayer is not answered as we want, he's obedient. Your will, not mine. Your way, your word, not the world's way. Jesus' grief in Gethsemane. It allows us to properly understand the cross. On the cross, Jesus bore the wrath that we deserve so that we might go free. So that we might have life. 
and we have that life even now. So as we look ahead to Easter, as we look ahead to, to Good Friday, looking at the cross and to Easter Sunday and rejoicing in the resurrection, we do so have been saved by Christ alone. And I hope this is helpful to us in being able to see the depth, the cost of the cross. And that should respond how we live, even this week. As we see the temptations that come into our own hearts, we can never treat sin as a light, as an easy thing. Because the the cross cost so much. And we come not as cowards, not as those who are weak, but we come to God in prayer to help with our temptations, to turn to him, to ask him to give us the strength to do his will, not ours. We come as those who have been one. We come as sons and daughters of the King. Why don't you just take a minute, just to, in the quietness of your own heart, just think on that, pray, respond, and I think we're going to see.